0: Well, today is the second Sunday of Easter. We continue then to look at the Lord's triumph. Uh, Lord willing, this morning and next week, we will finally finish the Gospel of John before returning to finish the book of Esther. But we want to look at this text, the Gospel lesson that was just read, under the three headings that are there on the back inside page of your bulletin, Commission, Confession and the purpose. So, first the commission. Here we mean the commissioning of the church. The text tells us on the very day of the resurrection at evening, the text calls this the first day of the week. Then Jesus appears to the disciples. So, the first day of the week, Sunday, the day of resurrection, the day of new creation. That has been the day on which, from the very beginning, Christians gathered to commemorate the Lord's victory. The very day is a kind of sacrament in this age. A pointer. This Sabbath, pointing to the eternal Sabbath rest of God. This day, signifying you as a people of the age to come. This day, the Lord's day, is a permanent reminder. It's a sign in the midst of the world's vanishing and vaporizing days that the church lives by and in and out of its union with the risen and the ascended and the coming Christ, that we are not governed by a mere linear succession of days ending in death. We start with and are defined by this day. So on this day, The text says the disciples had the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. It's reasonable. The master having been killed, it's a live option that they too might be rounded up. And so it's an atmosphere of fear. I mean, they had heard Mary Magdalene's firsthand account. I have seen the Lord, she said to them. But they're still in a state of confusion and fear. Right, this text takes place about 12 hours after last week's text. 12 hours after Mary and Peter and John had run to the tomb. And in the middle of verse 19, we're told Jesus came and stood in the midst of them. The clear impression being that he moved through the shut doors. His resurrection body clearly has properties that his earthly body doesn't have. But he exists embodied in a new relationship to time and to space and to matter. Jesus' resurrection is not a feature of this age or of this space. He is raised in heaven. He is raised in the power of the age to come. He who seemed to move through the grave clothes, we saw that last week, now moves through the locked doors. Now you can imagine how frightening this would be to the disciples, especially if you consider their betrayal, their flight at his crucifixion just days earlier. They would be thinking if he showed up at all, It would surely be with a word of chastisement. But it's a lovely scene. Our Lord comes and he says to a room full of betrayers. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. It's an extraordinary grace. He comes with a benediction. And this is repeated three times by Jesus in the text peace be with you, peace be with you, peace be with you. It's the first full word of the risen Christ to his treacherous people. And he's not referring here to their inner tranquility. This is not about inner peace. He uses the word shalom, or the equivalent of the word shalom, which was a rather ordinary Jewish greeting But here it's transformed into a gift, into a blessing, an announcement of full well being. This is a bestowal, like a foretaste of all the blessings of the kingdom of God when the risen one comes into our midst and speaks to us and says, Peace be with you. It's the compliment to it is finished just a couple nights ago, three nights before this, on Thursday night, in the upper room, Jesus had told these disciples, I tell you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you'll have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. So that overcoming that Jesus promised, now accomplished means peace and reconciliation and wholeness and harmony and victory now and ultimately in full measure for the whole cosmos. Thus the glorious benediction of the risen one, peace, shalom, be with you. And he shows us, the text says, he showed them his hands and his side, This is to assure them and to assure us, ultimately, that he is the same embodied Lord who had been crucified. That he is no ghost, that he is no phantom. This is a central part of this text that the Spirit draws our attention to in this portion of Holy Scripture. Even in glory, his body bears the scars, the wounds... Right, the marks of his suffering. His is no counterfeit mercy, right? No cheap forgiveness. There's a permanent and eternal reminder of what he did to bear away our sins, to make atonement. It's like a deeply beautiful, permanent tattoo. By which he is identified with us and stands in solidarity with us in his love, he has the scars on his glorious body. And he shows them those scars. And the disciples were told, were glad, <laughs> overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Overjoyed. Joy is the mood. It's the ambiance of Easter. And that means joy is the permanent mood of the church. Resurrection means gladness, means joy. Jesus had promised them as well, back on Thursday night, that he would turn their grief into joy. That no one would take the joy he gives away from them. So throughout the church's existence, in all of her agony, in all of her sorrow, in all of her weakness and perplexity, in all of her failures, joy springs up. Right? Because it's rooted in this inexhaustible fountain of the risen one's scarred flesh. Imagine their joy. Place yourself... Place yourself in that room. You know why? Because John intends you to believe on the ground of his testimony. And there Jesus begins commissioning the church. He says to them, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. That's a pretty noble job description, wouldn't you say? For the church. As the Father is sending me has sent me, I am sending you. He is the great apostle, the one sent by the Father. Right? An apostle simply means one who is sent. And thus the whole church is apostolic, being sent by him into the world. Now, we don't take over his work. It's important to get this right. We don't take over his work. Sometimes it's said that the church is the hands and the feet of Jesus. There's some truth in that, but it's too restricted a view. It's idolatrous to consider the church as an extension or a continuation of the incarnation. There can be no continuation of the incarnation because the incarnate one is raised and with his scars sits in glory. He's Lord, we're servant. He's the creator, we're creatures. It's idolatrous to think of the church as a mere linear succession of Jesus' work. We don't take over his work, and we don't do a new and different work, but he carries on his work freely and sovereignly without needing us, by sending us. It's a joyful, liberating, and sobering thought. What Christ did, being sent by the Father, we are summoned into that work. We are not needed. We are summoned into it. This is John's version, then, of the Great Commission. The Father sent the Son, so the Son sends you. He sends you in His name into the world. And then in verse 22, we get a sort of down payment of the Spirit in anticipation of the later fullness to be seen at Pentecost. This is sometimes called John's little Pentecost, this scene. The text says that Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. You can see that the risen Christ thinks of himself as the source and giver of the Spirit of God. So, the verb for breathe here is the same verb, the equivalent verb, used in Genesis 2. When God breathes into man, and he becomes a living being. So, what is happening in this scene? What we have is Jesus, the new Adam, recreating humanity, Forging a new humanity in the church by his own divine breathing forth of the Spirit. That's a pretty noble endowment for the noble job description that you have. The verb is also used in Ezekiel 37, which was the Old Testament lesson. Where life is breathed into the dead bones. Representing Israel in exile. The breath causes them to come to life, signifying Israel's resurrection. So there's a startling truth here that the raised Jesus intends to remake all things. He intends to remake humanity to restore shalom. And through the Spirit, the community of the church is the harbinger and the foretaste of that future. So the Spirit of God then The living spirit is the source, right? The ground of all the church's life and ministry. We are, beloved, fully charismatic in that sense. You may not know this, but you know, John Calvin has been known historically as the theologian of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit, We cannot rest in anything, even the Spirit's work yesterday, if we are not living and walking in the Spirit now. Sometimes one gets the impression that the Spirit could vanish and almost nothing would change in the life of churches. Because sometimes we reduce Christianity to an ideology, a set of principles that we could just carry on with. We got a book, we got the principles, we got the worldview we depend on the risen Jesus breathing on us for all that we do. For we are often dull and dead and straying and confused. But the commission's not yet complete. You have a noble job description. You have a noble endowment. And it's about to get even more staggeringly mysterious. Jesus says in verse 22... If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now that is not a trivial grant of authority. How is this to be understood? Well, it means that the church in her ministry forgives and retains sins. The basic thought is this. By the way, you can find this in our confessions. If you get a copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 30, paragraph 2. By preaching the gospel, by living the gospel, by the word and the sacraments, in the power of the Spirit, we declare to the world that those who believe have their sins forgiven. Those who refuse to believe have their sins retained. Sometimes our immediate response to this is, well, only God can forgive sins. That's true, but he often chooses to do it by having us, having the church, especially the ministry of the church, extend forgiveness in his name, on his behalf. Thus, Jesus can say, and he is speaking first and foremost to the apostles here, and subsequently to ministerial pastoral authority in the church, he can say to them, if you forgive them, notice that if you forgive them, they are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they are not. We are in the business of doing this, announcing, extending, granting the forgiveness of this Christ to one another. We do it privately, but we do it publicly Every week, right, when I announce that those who pray the prayer of confession, I assure you that your sins are forgiven, I am simply acting on this commission in a way that's fitting for the minister of the gospel. I remember when I was a young pastor, I did this at this point in the service, the assurance of pardon, and I said, I forgive you of your sins. Well, let's just say after the service, I had some people who didn't like that. They want to know who I thought I was. And I explained to them, this is just part of our confessional tradition. This is what Jesus told the church to do. If you forgive them, they're forgiven. If you don't, they're not. We do this every week. We do it at the table as well. The church announces there that forgiven sinners are invited to commune with Christ. Those who are unrepentant remain outside and are separated from communion. Their sins are retained. This commission, this grant of authority is at the heart of your life. It means we are called to live and to enact the gospel. Secondly, I want to look at... So that's the commission. That's John's great commission narrative, and it is great. Secondly, I want to look at Thomas's confession. I'm a fan of Thomas's. Um, he gets the epithet "doubting Thomas." I think a little unfairly, uh, because he simply asked for the same evidence the others had. That's all he wants. He wants the evidence everybody else had. Now he is a little emphatic about it. There's no doubt about that. There's a sort of perhaps intemperate. Spirit here, He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails are and put my hand in the side, I will not believe. But who can blame him? It's not like resurrections happen all the time. Right? The others to this point apparently did not believe in any full sense the testimony of Mary Magdalene. And so we're told of this other appearance of Jesus a week later, again with the door shut. Again, Jesus announces for the third time, peace be with you. And then he addresses Thomas. And he clearly understands his doubts. The Lord deals very gently with him. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. You'll notice, if you look carefully at the text, that Jesus uses almost the exact language Thomas used to express his doubts. Almost the exact language Thomas used to demand the evidence. You know, it's as if the risen one overheard him. The risen one is never out of earshot, beloved. He he hears what you're saying. This is a tremendous act of compassion on Jesus's part, meeting Thomas where he is. Right? People need evidence, get them the evidence. So the Lord tells him at the end of verse 27, Don't be unbelieving, but be believing, or stop doubting. Stop doubting what? I'll come back to this, but what do you think the Lord is telling Thomas to stop doubting? He's telling him to stop doubting the testimony of the church, mainly the witness of the other apostles. Stop doubting that. You should believe their witness. Thomas then makes the first theologically profound high confession of Christ in the church's history. He does it in verse 28, where he says, My Lord and my God. He's the first person to engage in high Christology. Thomas's. My son was telling me about a lecture he heard Sinclair Ferguson give recently, where I think he, he may have been addressing pastors. He said Ferguson said, "I'm a little suspicious when I go into a pastor's study, and I see this big long shelf of books on practical theology." Practical this and practical that. I want a big, long, thick section on Christology. That way I know the pastor is dealing with the highest things and the central things and the first things. Well, Thomas would have that section. He was a little slow to believe. He now moves to the head of the class. Remember, Mary Magdalene only called him Rabboni. Teacher. Thomas confesses his deity. Thomas is saying, You are the Lord. You are Yahweh of the Old Testament. You are my God. It's often said in certain academic circles that the early church essentially invented by embellishing the deity of Christ in the second or third century. You know, when the church's confession of the deity of Christ started? 12 hours after the resurrection. 12 hours. That's how long they waited before they were confessing Jesus as God. Thomas is the first one to see that the resurrection unveils Christ as God. Through what God does, we see who God is. And this is a unique God here. This is a God with wounds. This is a God with wounds. A God with pierced hands and a scarred side. And notice this as well. Jesus receives this confession, this act of worship, without hesitation or rebuke. He knows who he is. And then John records this important word of Jesus for us. Thomas, he says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. John knows that he's writing to people who didn't witness these events. But here's the beautiful thing about having apostolic scripture. That is no disadvantage to us. It is no disadvantage to John's original audience. It's no disadvantage to you. Far from it, in fact, the Lord pronounces a special benediction on you this morning who believe through the testimony of the apostles. Thomas should not have doubted the apostolic testimony. Neither should you. Blessed are you who having not seen, yet have believed. That brings me to the third Final point, the purpose. Verse 30, John says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. John's an editor, among other things. He leaves a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor. And, and we're told the reason or the purpose behind these editorial decisions. But, but I want to note this here. If Jesus were a dead Wonder-working prophet. You would never proceed in this manner. People don't proceed this manner with literary figures or, or, or if you're the executor of an estate of a noble person or a notable person. If he's a dead, wonder-working prophet, you would try to collect all of his works. This is how humans proceed. You'd want all of his works and you would not willingly leave anything out. But John's not doing that. All he has to do is introduce you to a risen and living Lord. Right? all, All he needs to do is include enough information for you to have faith and then enter into communion with the living one who will take over from there. So these things that he has written, he says, he's written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. That's why apostolic scripture is written. Notice again the early and the extremely exalted conception of Jesus. Long before the church sorted out what all this might mean for the Trinity. He's Lord. Already John has called him Lord, God, Christ, and the Son of God. And beyond that, he has said that in his name, in his name, which means grounded in the being of who he is, in his person, everlasting life is granted. So we need, this morning and always, to embrace the apostolic, firsthand, inspired, reliable testimony of Scripture. That is how we move now. From doubting to faith. We all have doubts. We all have to keep moving from doubting to faith. That's how we move others from doubting to faith. By embracing the testimony of the apostle. So let me conclude. So picture for a moment, Jesus walking into this room. How would that make you different when you go home today? What would it do for our faith? Our love for him. Our zeal for his kingdom. How would that encounter reorder our priorities? Place yourself in that room because John wants you to do that. Because we have his witness in scripture. right? Which is just as good, John is saying, as seeing the scars. Sometimes we speak sentimentally, nostalgically, if only I could have been there. John is saying, you don't need to be there. You have my witness. It's as good as seeing the scars. And it's important to ask ourselves then if we really believe the resurrection. Because there's there's no Christian faith that's not faith in the scarred and risen one. And there's no Christian faith that doesn't respond, remember, to what he does, which is commission us. We are either disciples or we are false confessors. And disciples are on mission because Jesus has commissioned us. That's what he's doing in the text. Mission, then, much like I said earlier about joy, mission is the mood or the ambience of the resurrection. Joy, mission. Mission. It's not optional. Here's the thing about mission. It cannot be delegated to a committee. You are the mission's committee. And the fact that Jesus still bears these scars is a reminder, an eternal reminder, of how costly obedience to this mission is. You know, there's a a kind of a bracing little charge in the phrase, as the Father sent me. It's in those two letters. As. As the Father sent me. In that manner of self-emptying and dependence and weakness and in humility, With that cost entailed as the backdrop. So I send you. I've said before that Jesus never says to his disciples, take up your resurrection and follow me. Ever notice that? Ever think about that? It's curious, right? I mean, the resurrection is central after all. He says, take up your cross and follow me. Because in this age, the way of the cross... The mystery of his sufferings, the fellowship of his sufferings, is how we partake of the power of the resurrection. The cross is the permanent sign of Christian discipleship and the place where resurrection power is ministered to you. Paul says this in Philippians 3 when he says, I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. His triumph is not fully our triumph. If it were, he could say, take up your resurrection. So we go then. We're sent under that sign. As wounded people to a wounded world, proclaiming a Christ who was wounded and is now raised and yet still bears the scars. And it is only that Christ, beloved, as Lord and Son of God, who can speak to the deep wounds, the brokenness, the scarring that life produces in the world. Only that one can administer the shalom of the resurrection. It is critical that we have this Christ in all of his fullness as Lord and God. There's a man named Edward Shilato. He lived in the early part of the 20th century. He lived during the horrors of the Great War. And he published this poem, which became somewhat well-known in the wake of the war. Published it in 1919. The poem's entitled, Jesus of the Scars. You have to place yourself in Europe after the horror of the war. This is the poem. If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the scars. The heavens frighten us, they are too calm. In all the universe, we have no place our wounds are hurting us where is the balm lord jesus by thy scars we claim thy grace if when doors are shut thou drawest near only reveal those hands that side of thine we know today what wounds are have no fear show us thy scars we know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak, and not a God has wounds, but thou alone. That is Thomas fingering the wounds of Jesus. Declaring my Lord and my God transposed into a 20th century key. Believe in this divine Jesus of the scars and have life in his name and go forth in the breath of the spirit as those who have encountered the risen and scarred Lord in faith because in John's testimony you have. Amen i yeah.